You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds. From Stokes Family Office. This is Lanyap Podcast with Doug and Greg Stokes. We started our original podcast with the first couple episodes reading some articles and excerpts from articles, and we're going to come back that today and read one from a really great writer by the name of Morgan Housel, who had this post on March the 3rd. And it really goes along the lines of another book that we've recommended in the past to our clients called uh, 10 Global Trends That Every Smart Person Should Know by Marion Tupi. But basically, the summary of the article is things are not as bad as they seem. So I'm going to start reading and then we can just dive right in after this. But um, here we go. Morgan says that President James Garfield died in 1881 because the best doctor in the country did not believe in germs and probed a bullet wound with an ungloved finger likely contributing to his fatal infection. There are so many examples of the primitive lives that the most privileged people lived in a different era, and it's astounding. Charlie Munger, who's Warren Buffett's partner, was born in 1924. The richest man in the world that year was John Rockefeller, whose net worth equaled about 3% of GDP or something like $700 billion today. $700 billion. Okay, let's make a short list of things that did not exist in Rockefeller's day. Sunscreen, Advil, antibiotics, chemotherapy, flu, tetanus, measles, smallpox, and countless other vaccines, insulin, for diabetes, blood pressure medication, fresh produce in the winter, TVs, microwaves, overseas phone calls, jets, and that doesn't say anything about computers, iPhones, Google Maps. And if you're honest with yourself, I don't think you would trade Rockefeller's $700 billion in the early 1900s for the average life in 2022. But that's hard to admit because all the insane luxuries Rockefeller didn't have are now considered basic necessities. Everything works like that. All luxuries become necessities in due time. It's why everything's amazing and no one's happy, as Louis C.K. says. The only way to counter that truth is going through life with purposely low expectations. Don't expect a lot of economic growth. Don't expect great investment returns. Don't expect a ton of innovation. Don't expect politics to improve. Expect occasional catastrophes. As Morgan said to us, expect the world to blow up about once a decade Be okay with things staying roughly the way that they are now or worse, because for most people, the way things are right now is indistinguishable from magic relative to how things used to be. Then any little improvements that happen to come along feel incredible. You appreciate them more. Low expectations don't make you depressed. They do the opposite. Making little gains feel amazing while bad news feels normal. It's not easy because the knee-jerk way to set expectations is to anchor to what everyone else has right now. But imagine the tragedy of unbelievable progress throughout your life and enjoying none of it because you expected all of it. My friend Brent has a theory about marriage. It only works when people want to help their spouse while expecting nothing in return. If you both do that, you're both pleasantly surprised. It's a good model for a lot of things. And that's the end of the article. I want to segue to 10 global trends. And this book was written before COVID, but basically the the theme of the book is that the world is improving, poverty rates are declining dramatically, technology is improving dramatically, hunger 
is basically non-existent globally. Uh, lifespan, people were dying in the 30s 100 years ago. Now people live in, until their 70s or 80s in some societies. But people still think that the good old days, you know, so things were better in the past than they are today. And there's just no evidence to support that. So anyway, I'm going to stop talking, Greg, and, and let you take it from here. I, I completely agree. One of the things, too, that that was way worse in the past, obviously, was childhood mortality. And that's fortunately not a big part of our day-to-day -day, uh, nowadays. Um, just imagine living in this area. And I remember my parents told me, or my mom told me specifically, her mom lived in the South in Cajun country in New Orleans before there was air conditioning. And I can only imagine what it would be like to live in that era as well, too. Looking back on my specific history, things have improved so dramatically for me, not only from the standpoint of education, et cetera, but also just from a day-to-day -day lifestyle standpoint. But still, you know, it's human nature to find things to complain about, et cetera, even though life is about as easy as it's ever been. It's interesting that in Morgan's article, how he talks about John D. Rockefeller being worth the equivalent of 3% of GDP or $700 billion in today's dollars and the, the inconveniences that he had to live with. If you think about it, the things like ice were a luxury back then. Um, they would have to truck ice in from the north and so that people could have drinks over ice. And the richest man in the world couldn't do anything different than anybody else in that regards. Sure, they could travel around on their barges or yachts and their private rail cars. But th other than that, things were, were a lot difficult. And I agree, a lot more difficult than they are today. And I agree that I, I probably wouldn't trade places with the richest man 100 years ago relative to, to what, the, what the, the way that we live nowadays. I remember when I was a kid, I used to really enjoy like staying in a hotel because I could watch whatever movies I wanted on demand and get food sent to my room by room service. And now I can do both of those things whenever I want to my house. Things are so much easier via Netflix or whatever six other streaming services I have and via Uber Eats or DoorDash or whatever. So things are a lot better than they, they were today. And I think that philosophy holds true in terms of maintaining low expectations because that's, I think, a good way to protect yourself from, from disappointment because if you have high expectations you're always going to find some reason to complain about what's going on. That also sort of reminds me of an article that Patrick O'Shaughnessy had written maybe seven or eight years ago around the theme of growth without goals. And essentially, the counter to that is long-term goal setting and saying, I have these expectations three, five, 10 years from now, and I want to be at this point, You know, whether it's net worth, whether it's investment return, whether it's marriage, kids, just general success, et cetera. And so this is where I want to be 10 years from now. And then you look back after 10 years and you've either achieved your goal or you haven't. And either you're disappointed or you're not. And the premise of the article is not necessarily around goal setting. It's around daily discipline and daily routine with the idea that incremental progress is a better way to approach long-term success than setting some arbitrary goal at some point in the future. And so this sort of reminds me of that where it's the expectations level is not really high or low. It's just something where you go about your daily life with a routine, with discipline, with expectations for the day. And then you wake up 
10 years from now and you're surprised with the result, whether it's how the world has changed, how life has gotten better, or just general success around you know work or life or social or any of those areas. So that's sort of the, a similar philosophy in that the expectations, there are really no expectations. It's just maintaining a, a level of discipline in life. And then ultimately, you're surprised when you open your eyes and look up you know, down the road and things are better. Right. I think it's interesting from the perspective of what we see in our day to day, like when we meet with clients and do and run through long term planning assumptions, especially with younger clients. And if you apply like a historical stock market rate of return, like 9% or 10% to a long term savings plan for young people, the numbers can look ridiculous. Like I remember I was meeting with clients the other day that we had a had a reasonable income and reasonable savings rate. And we applied like a we, we, we normally plan on like five or 6% rate of returns. And then the objective is obviously to beat those returns and, and look back and have those low expectations and, and be pleasantly surprised. And obviously, nobody knows what returns are going to be. But if you apply a historical rate of return to a 100% equity portfolio for younger people, the numbers can look ridiculous. And while that may end up happening from a, you know, what actually takes place from a return standpoint, the last thing that I would want to do is is plan on some historical rate of return that makes the numbers look fabulous and then way undershoot that for one reason or another. I think it's really good from a psychological standpoint to maintain those reasonable expectations that returns are going to be more muted in the future. And if you beat them, then that's great. Yeah. I mean, it's the old adage of under promise over deliver is a way better approach from a any sort of like sales perspective versus the opposite. It's just setting expectations that are low enough so that when those expectations are exceeded, you're pleasantly surprised versus, you know, you could end up in the same exact place. But if you have the expectations of higher outcomes at the outset, then you're disappointed versus ecstatic. I agree 100%. Now, one of the things that people in our generation specifically, and you know, 30s that have children, we have sort of notoriety because we're part of the what's what people denote as the HGTV generation, where we've been raised and have watched HGTV all of our lives and won all these bells and whistles on our on our houses, spend a lot of money on houses and housing prices have gone up lately. So people that have been subscribed to this sort of philosophy have been rewarded. Lately, interest rates have gone up. As of today, actually, the average 30-year rate is now above 5%, which is the first time that the mortgage rates have exceeded 5% since 2013. So rates are at a decade high and home prices are all also at highs. And so the coincidence of those two factors means that mortgage payments are also at, uh, at highs as well too, because values and mortgage interest rates are also at highs. How do you think this is going to impact housing prices on the whole and then just the general sort of society that we exist in and the and the thought process that we employ our generation from a housing standpoint? Yeah, I think the bigger issue is if you look back at historic interest rates or mortgage rates, we're basically where we were in 2019 in terms of the average 30-year mortgage. The issue is that the price of houses have increased so much that mortgage balances are much higher now than they were three years ago. I think it was very much the narrative that 
a rise in mortgage rates would have a major impact on home prices. It's obvious when you think about it that the cost of servicing a mortgage going up is going to, you know, the amount of money that you want to spend monthly to maintain that same note is the price of that house is going to have to decline to maintain that same level of monthly payment. The problem with that is that since the financial crisis in 2008, 2009, we're in a severe housing supply, especially since people are moving, there's sort of this mass move out of urban areas and into suburban areas post-COVID, there's a shortage of, of housing. And so I think we're in a situation where theoretically we could have a rise in mortgage rates like we're experiencing the first half of, of 2022, coinciding with either a steady price of home or even a, a continued increase of the value of homes, which it would be extremely interesting. I think that would be very burdensome, obviously, on discretionary spending for the homeowners. I think it could be burdensome for renters. I mean, so there's going to be a lag in rental monthly rates to the price of homes just because people are buying homes or, and a lot of these people are buying homes to then rent them out for single family rentals. And so there's some sort of lag component to this. And so I think you could see rental prices go up as a component of this, but it doesn't necessarily mean that rising mortgage rates means falling home prices. I think that people, they need to buy a house, they want to buy a house. And whether it's a 4% rate or a 5% rate, I don't think it's going to dissuade them, especially as we talked last week, the household balance sheet is still strong. Uh, it's not like 2008 where these are subprime borrowers. These are really high quality uh, people that are buying homes and high quality credits. And the percentage of that mortgage payment to disposable income prior to the first half of 2022 was quite low. And so there's still the ability to sustain a higher mortgage payment and still not have a major impact to home prices. So that's what we're seeing right now. We'll see what happens. I'm just looking at this chart from the New York Times, and this is monthly mortgage payments. It says monthly mortgage payments have abruptly jumped up, and it says average mortgage payments on a new loan application at the start of the pandemic was about $1,100. And now it's like uh, about $1,653 a month. That was $1,100 a month 2020 to $1,600 a month now. Like you accurately just stated, as a percentage of income, mortgage payments were at historic lows not too long ago. So by them increasing even 50%, that's still on a relative relative to history is at a very reasonable level. And I think from the standpoint of the the way that people like to live nowadays, and from a psychological standpoint, like we were just talking about the things that are normalized now where where people, you know, want the bells and whistles associated with their house in terms of the HGTV generation. I don't think that that's going to really, people are going to sacrifice those types of things at this point. Of course, if, if the values of houses continue to go up and rates go up as well too, there could be some effect, but I don't necessarily see this being sort of some sort of uh, red flag as far as or decrease in housing prices. Of course, anything can happen, but I think that the dynamics exist today, like you just stated, relative to inventory, relative to the fact that on a percentage of income basis, mortgage rates are still relatively low on a historic basis. I think that those two number of other factors play into the fact that there's not going to be some sort of immediate deceleration in housing prices 
No, I just think that what the natural reaction to a massive jump in the value of homes is that it's going to come back to earth at some point. And so when you see home prices jumping by 20, 25% per year, and a lot of these homes, not a lot of them, most of them have a mortgage on them, but let's say it's a 20 or 30% uh, equity value in the home. I mean, the value of the equity is basically doubling in those situations. And so when you have that sort of impact to housing prices over such a short period of time, it's natural to think that why would you want to buy into this sort of market? But I mean, people don't think about their homes that way. People think about their homes as, look, I've got, I've been renting for a while. I've been saving up for a house. I'm married. I'm about to have kids or I have kids. I'm buying a house. I'm not, you know, whether it's a 10% higher this year than it was last year. I'm not going to wait another year to see what happens. I have the money for my down payment. I'm going to go ahead and buy the house that I want and that I can afford. I don't think they're really thinking about it from the perspective of, well, you know, this house might decline by 10% in value over the 30 years that I'm going to have this mortgage. So I don't see this as more of a an investment thinking people think of this investment wise, I think that just they need to have a house to live in. I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm sure glad though that I'm not going through the home purchasing process right now because the conceptualizing paying an additional 3% or 2% or 2.5%, I think I, my mortgage rate is at like 2.6% right now or something like that. If I had to stomach, I still would. You have When you're in our phase of life, you almost have to, you know, we got each of us has three kids and need more space. You have to kind of do it, but it certainly wouldn't be fun. But I don't think, at least as of right now, it's gotten to that point of where it's going to really stop people from doing what they have to do. Of course, it could get ridiculous, like in the, our our parents' generation that they were having to pay eight, nine, ten, eleven percent on their mortgages, and that could certainly have an effect. But I think as it stands right now, it just kind of comes with the territory. It seems like people have gotten used to paying higher prices. And just by over the last several years with the price of residential real estate increasing, and this is just another factor that goes into the sort of the pricing aspect of residential real estate in terms of the mortgages being higher. Yeah. It reminded me of a story my father-in-law told me one time about when they were buying their first house. And this was, I guess it was the early 1980s. And this is where, when interest rates were Maybe it was the late 70s. Anyway, where interest rates were like, let's call it 12 to 13% for a, or higher for a mortgage. And they went to put an offer in a house. And I think the offer, the house was listed for $100,000. And they offered $90,000 for it. And the seller came back and wanted to split the difference and make it at even 95000 And they walked on the deal. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> It's like, what, I mean, what, what sort of situation are you in now, especially when the cost of money is even at 5%, but 2.6%, 2, 2. what is that? What's the difference on your monthly note on an additional $5,000? Right. I mean, um, there's plenty of stories like that. And the moral of the story really is that nobody knows, obviously, what's, how this is all going to impact prices. But if you look at it through the lens of the long term, the way that residential real estate has functioned until recently is it's kind of kept up with inflation in terms of pricing power that's really kind of accelerated over the last several years in terms of a lot of the Sunbelt areas like Texas and Arizona, et cetera, Florida, noticeably not Louisiana in in certain price ranges. I think that if you look at it through the lens of the long term, I think this stuff, these phases kind of wash out and you can get lucky on timing. Like you hear stories of people that bought, that seemed like there was a very 
uh, narrow buying opportunity for residential real estate right in the midst of the March through like early summer of 2020 period. But a lot of this, a lot of this, just like any, just like any other sort of asset class, it probably just blends, kind of fades in, fades out over time in terms of the timing and the, the relative rates, et cetera, that people pay. Yeah. This also bleeds to the commercial side. Generally, I think the narrative is that rising interest rate impacts real estate. And just because real estate's a, usually a levered asset, it's the most levered asset in the world. I mean, you can borrow, like for example, people that borrow against like their stock portfolio, for example, generally can only get about half their stock portfolio out on what's called on margin. So if you got a million dollars, you sometimes go to, you know, whether it's Fidelity or Schwab or whoever you use and get $500,000 against your, your stock portfolio. At some point in the last couple of years, you can get almost 100% of the value of a building, maybe 95% of it in debt. And so the price of that debt is very crucial to the value, of, or at least that's the narrative, is it's very crucial to the value of the piece of property. Because if you're paying interest at 4% versus paying interest at 6%, and the entire building or group of buildings is financed by debt, then it costs a lot more, obviously, at a higher interest rate to own that piece of property. This is a, a group called uh, Oak Street that produced this research. Oak Street's a, a real estate company out of Chicago. And what they, they said is that this goes back to 1987, historical correlation of cap rates and interest rates. Now, a cap rate is just your earnings yield on a particular building or commercial real estate investment. So if your cap rate is 5%, that means on a levered basis, you earn 5% on that investment each year. And so there's, there's seven environments where there was a higher or rising interest rate environment going back to 1987. So it was January to October 87, uh, December, to, December 89 to October 1990. The last one of this particular study was July 2012 to September 2013. So seven environments. Only two of them did the cap rate expand, meaning did the value of the real estate go down during those rising interest rate periods. So there's a lot more to do with the value of real estate than just changes in interest rates, I guess, is the moral of that story. There's you know, the biggest, what are the three most important words in real estate? It's location, location, location. It's not interest rate, interest rate, interest rate. And so I think that it's just, there's a lot more at play with what's going on in real estate. We talked about supply shortages in the wake of the financial crisis. I mean, the, the whole residential real estate markets are completely underbuilt. They could get overbuilt in the next couple of years if builders could actually get supplies. But that's a whole nother topic that we've already gone through related to supply chain disruption. So I just don't see this as you know one-for-one one correlation that rising interest rates will lead to lower real estate prices. Although you sort of hope for that, especially if you're in the market for a house. As if you're in the millennial generation and you're, you have a family and you're trying to buy a piece of real estate and you have the ability to buy it four hundred thousand versus five hundred thousand, for example, then obviously you want that to happen. But it doesn't look like it's going in that direction anytime in the near term. So switching gears to to something a little bit less business oriented, the Masters is this weekend. It's April fifth, so you, this will master be over by the time this is um, this is done. But Last night there was a a bet. I actually put a bet in on the it was a national championship 
Final Four. So I put $20 bet on North Carolina to win, and they lost. But there was also a there was a free bet that Caesars Sportsbook was offering, and it was North Carolina to win the national championship and Tiger Woods to win the Masters. And it was like plus 15000 And so you put like $25 up, and you can win like, I don't know, something like 5500 or something like that. So I took that bet of, I'm already out. What do you think the odds that Tiger, I saw that he's plus 5,000 to win the Masters. Do you think he's got any chance? There's an interview, I hope I'm eating my words, because as much controversy as Tiger has had in his career, and, and he deserves all of the criticism that he gets, he's just so exciting to watch, and he just makes the tournament so much more fun to watch. I really do hope at least he's in it on the last day. I hope he wins too. But he was talking, he said he thinks he can win the tournament. The problem's not his golf swing. The problem is walking. And so how are you going to walk for four days? I mean, I've been to the to Augusta before. It's It doesn't look it on TV, but it is extremely hilly. What is he dealing with from his uh, car accident injuries? Well, he broke his leg, right? Yeah, I mean, his compound fracture in his leg. He had more issues than that. He had nerve damage. He has a rod, a steel rod in his leg. He's got a major limp. And I don't even think it was 12 months ago. Maybe it was. It's probably it was about 12 months ago. Yeah, I didn't think he was going to play anymore. I can't believe he's he's already almost back. It's amazing. I saw the crowd watching him dur- during his practice round. And it was like completely, it was like ro- 10 rows deep the entire fairway down. It's pretty insane, that energy that he brings. And I'm a casual golf spectator. That's the only th- reason why I'll be watching and I'm going to be rooting him on and everything. He's just been, he's really a sort of national treasure, you know, even with all the faults that he has. I mean, you can take him if you want. My pick, I'll go with John Rahm, who's the favorite, but the guy's an amazing golfer and he's plus 1,000. I think he's plus 1,000. Anyway, I'm going to take, I'm going to take John Rahm. I'm a very casual spectator, so I, I like to root for the underdog too. Just that's my sort of nature. So I'll, I want Tiger to win. I I'll watch and root for him accordingly. But somebody who's always, a couple of other people that have always sort of seemed to be in the running but have never been able to convert that I enjoy watching, one is Sergio Garcia. And I think he's a huge underdog as well, too. But has he, he's come in second place a bunch of times, right? Yeah, but I, I can't stand Sergio. The reason is he, he uh, I think Augusta is a national treasure as well. And he, he thinks it's like one of the worst golf courses. Oh, really? <laughs> Maybe see that I don't know enough about golf to go into that. And then also, didn't Bryson DeChambeau he won right or he won the PGA Tour or something like that? <laughs> I don't think he won the uh, FedEx Cup. He's he's won a number of tournaments though. He won the U.S. Open. I saw he's sort of an underdog as well too. And so you're just naming all the golfers that I can't stand. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> right. So we'll see. Those are my three. Those are the three dogs that I'll be following, and we'll see if any of this ends up winning. All right. Well, that's it. We're at 30 minutes. Uh, That's it for today. And I don't even remember what we talked about, but a lot of housing discussion and and life is better than you think it is. That's right. Share with your friends and like and subscribe and rate us and comment and all the above. And we'll be back next week. Thanks for listening to this episode of Lanyap. This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office and produced by Reverb. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, 
visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com. The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.